Welcome to the Sacred City Life Podcast. This is your host, Pastor Justin Dean, Pastor of Sacred City Church. And this podcast is all about following Jesus in the everyday, normal rhythms of life. And today, I have a special guest on the podcast, one that I am really thankful for and really excited for you to hear from, and that is Pastor Bob Thune, or Robert Thune the Third. Uh, it's actually... Well, it's it's a long story. I'm actually not a junior or the third. My dad and I have different middle names, which is very confusing. Okay, so because okay. I'm not really Bob Thune Jr., I'm not really Bob Thune the second, but I am Bob Thune, and my dad is Bob Thune. It's very confusing. That is very confusing. Bob is with us today, um, lecturing for Porterbrook, Porterbrook Quad Cities, and um, if you guys don't know, I spent some time with Bob out in Omaha. Bob was very formative for me in, in Sacred City and planting this church. And I got to spend about a year and a half out there in Omaha and doing ministry around him and seeing him and being in Porterbrook under his leadership. And it's just really formative for us. So it's an exciting time to finally get him back to the Quad Cities. And uh, Hey, I'm sorry it's taken me so long to get here in a meaningful way. <laughs> Thanks it, for having me. It's all right, man. When, when you guys told me that, that you thought I should come to Omaha... I was like, I no, I don't feel the Lord doing that. I don't think that's the Lord leading me. <laughs> I, all I knew was Omaha of Omaha before I moved there was the silos oh, yeah. on the interstate yeah. from here to to Denver. Yeah, and I was like, no, yeah. I'm not coming. So I understand it's 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 hard to come this way too. <laughs> so Bob, what are you what are you lecturing on? Uh, what's your topic? What do you what's your idea? The title is the mission of God and the modern self. And what I wanted to do is explore um, some categories of how people in our world think about the self and what it means to be a self. Uh, Carl Truman just came out with a book last month, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Uh, he's not the only one that's sort of done some work on this idea of the modern view of selfhood. Um, a really profound book for me, Justin, I read a couple years ago was uh, Jonathan Grant's book, Divine Sex where he basically is, is working out a sexual ethic. And he says the reason the Bible's sexual ethic doesn't make sense and is confusing to people in the modern world has very little to do with sex and a lot to do with how people understand the self. Mm. And so it was a provocative idea for me, and I've been thinking about that for a few years now. And I decided, hey, it'd be, it'd be good, as I'm trying to think about how do we equip people to make disciples uh, of Jesus in the modern day, one of the things we need to think about is how do our neighbors and our friends and the people we work with and our families, how do they think about self? Because what it means to entrust myself to Jesus or what it means to make changes in my life or what it means for me to relate to other people as a self. So if you think about it, my relationship with God, my relationship with others, and my relationship with me all has grounding in what I perceive to be true about myself, what it means to be a self. So that's kind of the content I'm trying to work out. Mm. Well, I'm excited for you to do it because <clears throat> I've read all of those books, and when I read those books, I resonate so deeply with them, and then I'm like, oh, wait, how do I... What do I, I do with this? What do I do with this? And how do I like bring this down to uh, you know, a level that I can you know, make use for it in a sermon and also that I can really teach on it? And I'm not good at that, but one of the things that you're so good at is taking a very complicated either topic or book, and then just, here's the three things this means for you. Yeah. And I'm like, gah, yes, that is Well, exactly maybe what. I will fail, but that's what I'm going to try to do. <laughs> yeah, we're doing this <laughs> podcast before he's actually taught, so 
We don't know. I'll, I, I'll do a follow-up That's podcast. Right. and See uh, how successful it was. Yeah. So this idea of the self, obviously, I don't think we, sometimes we don't think about, well, you know, like a worldview. We're, we're seeing through it, right. but we don't actually think about it. And I think we have intuitively, um, we have an understanding of the self, but we probably haven't really diagnosed where, that coming, where that's coming from. Is it biblical? Is it accurate? And so I'm looking forward to it. Um, I think what I want to do is start you off with a really hard question. Great. And Sounds fun. <laughs> because there's, and then I'm going to follow it up with, I'm going to offer you this question. And I, I see, I feel like there's, there's two kind of approaches in the church with dealing with this. Maybe I'll just start there. This crazy question. One, one approach in the church is just to kind of make fun of it and just to show how completely, you know, crazy it is. And the other approach is to try to, and I'll just say it's like a Tim Keller approach. You try to um, operate from within that worldview to then kind of show the good and then show the bad and show how it's unhelpful. And I, I kind of want to hear your view on, you know, is it appropriate just to go, this is craziness yeah, and make fun of it in a sense. Yeah. Even though there could be people there, there probably are people there that are holding these truths yeah. to kind of be self-evident, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, is it appropriate to, to just blast it and make fun of it? Or should we, is it, is it more appropriate or is it more missional to kind of accept some of it yeah. to, to debunk it, let's say? Yeah. I don't know if that's a good way to say it. Yeah. So that's where I want to go. You can think about that in the back of your mind. But I, here's, the, here's the question. The question is, or the statement is, how does this headline make sense in our world today? Okay, so what kind of understanding of the self do you have to have for this headline to make sense? This was a headline from this week, and it said, I think it was CNN, it said, Elliot Page, star of the Umbrella Academy, has came out as transgender, identifies as a queer man. Now, let me unpack this just a little bit. Ellen Page... Ellen Page is an actress we know about. <laughs> Ellen Page is a uh, is a uh, lesbian actress who's married to a female. And she was, if you go to Umbrella Academy, her name, Ellen Page, is in all the credits. And uh, like I said, she's she she's an, a lesbian. CNN article is not Ellen Page transitions or becomes transgender to Elliot Page. It begins with Elliot Page, yes. a person that the world has never heard of. Yeah. Elliot Page, star of Umbrella Academy. That right there, those two things don't make sense to me. <laughs> there was no Elliot Page in Umbrella Academy. No, right. no. It's like, was this her brother? Is right. her brother in the show? Is he an extra? I didn't see him. Um, and now identifies as a queer man. Yet is married to a female. Yeah. I, I Okay, so immediately I, I'm just like, my brain doesn't work with this sentence. I read this sentence and I'm twisted up. There's something in it that's like, you, you all should get this. You all should understand this. Yes. And, I, and I'm like, those, those words don't go together. Yeah. So tell me how, 
or tell me what, uh, what is the understanding of the self that's behind that statement that I should get, but obviously I don't. Yeah, that's a, that's a fascinating question because that headline taps into maybe three different aspects of the understanding of the self. One is the question of whether gender and sexuality are givens. We'll come back to that one. The more fascinating one right up front is why would they start with Elliot Page? Um, what does this suggest about the self or the, the modern view of the self? And then the third thing is, what's this sort of orthodoxy that's being pressed upon us by, by that headline? What is, what, is, what, are, what, are, what is the writer of that headline or the editor of that headline telling us we must now assume in order to live in the world that we live in? Because those three things are all going on. We have a statement about a person. We have a naming of that person. And then we have an implicit, here's what the reader should understand yeah. in this headline. Um, so what's fascinating about the question you're asking, the very first sentence of Carl Truman's book, I don't have the book in front of me, so I'm going to paraphrase the sentence, but he basically says, this is a book about, the question, the, the question I want to ask in this book is, how did we get to a world where the statement, I am a man trapped in a woman's body, makes any sense at all? Mm. Because if you had uttered that statement to my grandfather, he would have laughed and said, that's unintelligible. I don't know what even that sentence means. Yeah. But now we live in a world where that sentence has deep meaning and apparently is assumed. How do we live in a world where the idea that I'm a man trapped in a woman's body makes any sense at all? And, and what Carl Truman is doing is to get to a world where that makes sense, there are shifts in the understanding of the self that are the, are the foundation of that story. Mm. So what he's trying to do that I think is wise for us as Christians is he's trying to say, um, these conversations about sex, sexuality, gender, transgenderism, all of these things are grounded in assumptions about the self. And for Christians to be wise here, we have to not have the battle just on sexual ethics or identity, but on the question of what does it mean to be a person? What is the self? Um, so that's kind of a, it's interesting that that headline sort of is tapping into the very question that yeah. Carl Truman is asking. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess I can, I can narrate and walk through maybe what a few of those pieces are that I think lie at the heart of that. So, um, number one, to get to, to get to a world where transgenderism even is a category, we have to live in a world where there is no such thing as essential human nature, where there's no such thing as the givenness of our bodies, our minds, and our being. But where rather um, we create ourselves yes. rather than arriving in the world with an established human nature. Um, this, the fight over this goes all the way back to the Middle Ages, um, where the Christian tradition has always held there is a givenness of things. There's a, a, a nature to everything in the world. This was Aristotle's understanding of existence. It was the Christian understanding of existence is that not only do human beings have a nature, but a table has a nature and a cat has a nature and a tree has a nature. There are things that are essential to these objects in the world because God has created the world and because he's created it such that each thing is the thing that it is. And if it didn't possess those, those things, it wouldn't be that thing. Right. So if you go out in your yard and you plant an acorn with your kids... That's going to grow up into a tree, whereas if you plant a watermelon seed, it's going to grow into a watermelon plant. Why? Because those seeds have within them the nature of those things. And that was always understood to be true of human beings as well. Uh, what happened, 
I mean, the shift started all the way back in the Enlightenment, but it really took shape uh, with existentialism in the 50s and 60s. Jean-Paul Sartre, who was one of the key figures in existentialism, said uh, his sort of tagline for his whole philosophy and way of seeing the world was, existence precedes essence. So in other words, there is no essence to who you are. It's your choices, your existence, the things you do in this world that create your essence. Mm. So if we buy into that view of the self, that there is no essential nature to who I am, um, then of course it makes sense that we would live in a world where people can just choose to redefine themselves at any moment and say, I know that I was born in this body, but now I've decided I'm choosing to go in this direction with my being, and therefore I expect the world to relate to me according to this new chosen identity that I have. The only way we get there is to deny the existence of a given human nature. Now, the beautiful thing about that for Christians is we can do two things there. We can acknowledge, okay, that's that's the world we live in right now where people sort of take it for granted that there is no givenness to human beings. However, that's not the world that actually exists. Mm-hmm. We actually still live in a world where things do have natures yeah, and where any human being that chooses to uh, deny that they have an essential nature or to act against that essential nature is going to experience the consequences of what it means to do that in a world where that just doesn't work yeah. because we actually have a given human nature. So that um, th- th- there's sort of a natural law component there that I think works in our favor because, I mean, and and this is... You're, you're going against the grain of the universe. Exactly. Yeah. Which I, someone, uh, there's a book by that title. Stanley Howard. There you go. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which I think is a great title because it just it explains so much of what we're experiencing in the world. It's like, yep, you either go with the grain of the universe or you go against the grain of the universe. So, the givenness of things. Uh, there's the title there too. Yeah, it's Marilyn Robinson. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but it's so good. So the givenness of things that includes biology. Yes, absolutely. And so, back to our our title, we've rec- we we've all re- we've all received biology, right? Chromosomes, right? Et cetera, et cetera, right? And so, how? What ha- okay, I already know, I think, where I'm, where I'm trying to say, where I'm going. When did psychology yeah. trump biology? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> so, that, so that gets us into the second aspect of the modern self, which is the idea of the psychological or the therapeutic self. And this is really kind of grounded in Freud, uh, although, you know, Freud is mostly debunked now and kind of laughed at, but it, it really was fascinating the, the influence he still has, even though he's only a, it was only 100 years ago, that really that, or a little over 100 years ago that Freud was working, um, and others after him um, who have sort of caused us to, to make this shift. Uh, and you saw the same thing happen in religion. If you go back to the middle of the 1800s with thinkers like Schleiermacher and Feuerbach and people like that who said, hey, the real important thing about religion is not, are these things objectively true? Did Christ rise from the dead? Did he die on the cross? Did he uh, enter into the world in the incarnation? What matters is how religion makes us feel. Hmm. It's it's the subjective sense of meaning to life that religion gives us. And what they were reacting, they were basically trying to say, oh gosh, there's all this new scientific work that seems to make it harder for people to believe in miracles. How do we preserve the essence of religion? And the choice they made was, well, if we just make religion subjective instead of objective, that solves the problem and people can still believe in science but still embrace this faith. Obviously, that's proven to be a terrible uh, mistake. But in that religious shift, then you saw the corresponding shift in um, in therapy and the therapeutic mindset, which is very a, a very 20th century phenomenon. 
But what you have is um, the idea that the self is defined not by, again, what's given to me in my nature and the world outside of me. So uh, one of the things I'll, I'll say in the lecture is this. Think about how my great-grandfather, Alvald Kvalnes, who is an immigrant from Norway coming to America in 1906, how he thought about job satisfaction. If you asked Alvald, hey, are you satisfied with your job homesteading in uh, North Dakota? He would say, food's on the table. Putting food on the table. <laughs> and I get up every day and I try to feed my kids and, you know, provide for their needs. That literally was his whole view of job satisfaction. It wasn't like, does it make me feel good? Do I feel like I'm really using the deepest potential of my being? Those things just didn't have a category in my great grandfather's worldview because. Um, it was very much about the, the, the way you found meaning in your life was very much about the community you were tied to and the things you contributed to the world, right? So if I contribute to the world, provision for my children, whether or not that gives me personal satisfaction, it's a meaningful contribution because it creates meaning in the relational world that I live in, mm -hmm. these relationships that, that bound my life. Um, I was telling some of my friends recently, he also emigrated into an existing colony of Norwegians because he didn't speak any English. So he had to go to some people that he knew, like, these people can kind of help me gain my footing in this new world. And so it was natural that his neighbors were Norwegian, that they spoke Norwegian at family gatherings, and that slowly over time, he learned English and assimilated into the culture of America because that's how that process works, right? It's all relational in nature. What happened uh, as a result of not just Freud, but others like him, is that our, our view of meaning, our view of consciousness, and our view of our place in the world took kind of an inward turn, um, where now we look for meaning inside of us rather than outwardly. Um, we, we think of ourselves in the world and our place in the world primarily in terms of, is it meaningful to me? And if I have a job that's, that provides an amazing income for my family and puts food on the table, but it's not meaningful to me, then I probably don't like my job. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying that's necessarily good or bad. I think job satisfaction is kind of just a, an illustration of the point that we're talking about. But when, when meaning and when the whole way I relate to the world became uh, inward and when my inner state of being became the fundamental way that I conceive of my place in the world. You can see now how psychology, it's only a matter of time before psychology trumps biology. Mm. Because if biology is part of my externality, it's, it's a way I exist in the world, but that's not as foundational anymore as the inward senses I think and feel. If my biology says I am a woman, but I feel like I want to be a man or I feel like the way I want to exist in the world feels more masculine or I, I'm having questions about even what it means for me to be a sexed and gendered being, it, you can see how that begins to shape how our modern society has decided to deal with those things where now really all that matters is how you feel about the way you feel you should be in the world, not the way you actually are in the world. Which just... <clears throat> It blows me away. I guess it doesn't blow me in the way in the sense that I believe in the doctrine of original sin. Right? Yeah. And so, so when I search, when I go inward, it's, it's a scary place. Right. You know, yeah. uh, Dexter talks about, you know, this, he's basically has this inward nature that he wants to kill people. Yeah. And, and so instead he kills serial killers. So he, he only, but he calls it his dark guest. 
Yeah. The dark guest. That's yeah. what he, he just names it. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, that's that's kind of how I would name that internal original sin psyche. Yeah. But our society says that's who you really are. Go with it. Yes. Now, what's fascinating to me is, I'm just going to say, it, but the the left, the the, the far leaning left, the ones who are shouting science, 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 right? Trust, just trust science. How can they? How do you say that, and yet deny biology? Because they've unhinged science from the things that are. Uh, unflattering to their worldview, right? So think about even how science is done now. Um, What you're seeing in the last, even just the last couple of years, is a shift that um, scientific studies that don't sort of match the reigning consensus aren't viewed as science anymore, right? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I don't know if you follow Mark Regneris at the University of Texas, but he did a study, this has been maybe almost 15 years ago now, that almost ended his career as an academic. And in fact, that ever since then has kind of placed him in a weird uh, category where he's sort of marginalized. And the study was basically on, do kids who are adopted by same-sex couples fare as well in the world as kids who are adopted by a mom and a dad? And he just did the scientific work to say, actually, they don't. The, 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 the mental health and the, their flourishing in the world objectively can be shown that it's not the same. Yeah. That study went against the sort of prevailing wisdom that the scientific community wanted to offer. And so they basically just said, you're a bad scientist. And he's like, all I did was the, like, yep. go read the work. Like yep. I just did my job. So th- this is, I think one of the the challenging things, the other thing about the self now is that the self is a politicized self, ah. right? Everything has become political. Yes. So we don't have the privilege of living in a world where we can separate science from politics or gender from politics or religion from politics everything has become politicized because politics is, um, I can't remember whose quote this is, but civil war carried on by other means, right? It's like when we, when we don't want to go to war with each other, what do we do? Well, we, we politically fight with each other. Everything has become politicized because the self, uh, and again, you said the left, and I actually think this is an inheritance of leftist radical politics that goes all the way back to the early Marxists in the, in the 1920s and thirties. But, um, the the way that we conceive of how to bring change in the world is all political. Yeah. And so um, everything becomes politicized because that's the the battleground for whose ideas get prominence. Mm. Yeah. I can't remember her name right, right off the top of my head, but there was a scientist who just was on Joe Rogan podcast and talking about all she her conclusions. She was doing transgender studies yeah. and her conclusions were we need to be really careful when it comes to children. That's like her, her conclusion was like, the science isn't out yet. This seems like it could be damaging. We need to be really careful. And she got canceled. Like yep. Spotify wanted to take her off, you know, yep. the, the the podcast. And she's not a Christian. She's not like pushing this right right weaning right leaning agenda. She's just following the science. Yeah. But the science didn't fit the political narrative, and so she yeah. was canceled. Yep. Okay, so we've got the self um, gets disconnected from the givenness of things, including biology. The self gets psychologized, and it's something that's within you that you go and find. Yeah. Um, And that means it's it's kind of removed from any external authority. Right. Right? Right. And so all external authority is seen as um, oppression. Which is why the headline is Elliot Page, 
not Ellen Page, because the other aspect of the modern self is if if it is psychologized, if myself is primarily internal and related to how I feel in the world, and if it's disconnected from givenness and there's no way, there's no natural law that can bound me, the question is, how does that self get um, validated in my social circles? How, mm. how if myself no, if in my great grandfather's day, it was you're a man who works hard, who provides for your family, and there's a set of relationships that give meaning and weightiness to that self, to that sense of who you are in the world. How does that work in a, in a world where the self is psychologized, politicized, and, and, and disconnected from nature? Well, the answer is I have to, the, the social world I inhabit has to validate my sense of self. And especially with um, issues of gender in, in the current day, the way that happens is by the culture around me demanding that everyone else affirm the, psychology, the psychological choices I've made about who I want to be. And so in the transgender sort of activist community, once you make the, once Ellen Page decided to become Elliot Page, whenever that happened in her inner psychological shift, whenever she decided, okay, I'm now a, I, these categories don't even make, a transgender man. What is this? A, a queer, a, queer, a queer man. man. Okay. Once I don't, that's what <laughs> you're answering this for me, Bob. The categories <laughs> are maddeningly confusing. So Once, does, no, here's the other one. Now is her wife straight now? Listen, I, is her wife I straight? can't even pretend to answer that question. Okay. Um, but once she made that shift, then you, the, 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 the world around her now is going to be held accountable to mm. validate that by relating to her in light of her chosen or his chosen identity, whatever. And right, this is the fight over pronouns and the fight over names. Um, this is this is all related to our, our the self in the modern world because it is so disconnected from any external reality. The only external reality left is the social validation of the people around me. That's fascinating. <clears throat> Which is interesting if you think about. I mean, every one of us has always existed in a social framework, but. Is that social framework uh, something that reiterates what I already know to be true about myself? Yeah. Or is it the means by which I arrive at a validation of myself? It's very, very interesting. Yeah, or is there, I mean, with that, is there, val is there any um, benefit for my social community to critique me? Yeah, no, there is not. <laughs> And they can't, and they're not allowed to. Yeah, there would be benefit if your self-image was was grounded enough to be able to handle that kind of critique. Which is another funny thing about the modern self is, for all of its proposed rigidity, it's actually quite fragile. Because if think about it, if psychologically, Justin, I decided tomorrow that I want to identify as a woman. And all the people in my social sphere said, you're an idiot, that's false, that's wrong, that's not who you are, we're not validating that. I would be in crisis, right? It, it, because there's there's no sense in which I can maintain a sense of self in a world where everything else invalidates that mm. if it's not grounded in givenness, if it's not grounded in biology, if it's not established in the set of relationships that I'm in. So it, it is fascinating that that's we, we live in a world where that kind of external validation matters deeply in a way that the self is fragile in a way that it's never been before, I guess is how I would say it. Yeah, that's good. And the sad thing is now that you, if, if your real world community do, won't provide that for you, right. you can find an internet 
group. Yeah, exactly. Will, you know, that will call you whatever you want to be called. Yeah. So we, we talked about the cyclization of the self. We talked about um, one, one of the things that Truman talks about, and, and he comes from Freud, is the sexualization. Yeah. How, how does he call it? Basically, the sexualization of the of the psyche or something like that, where yeah. everything is sexual. Yeah. Because there is... Yeah. Truman Truman says it this way. It's a hell, I, again, I'm not quoting him exactly, but I'm paraphrasing him. He says, uh, identity became psychologized, psychology became sexualized, yes. and then sex became politicized. Oh, yes. So that's how we got to where we are. Because obviously, we, when we say, okay, if the self is all internal, if it's all psych, it's, a, it's just a figment of my psyche, then why can't I be... A black man. Right. Why can't I identify? Actually, as a black wealthy man. That's who I want to be. <laughs> you know? <laughs> An NBA athlete or something. I want to, that's who I want to be, all right? Uh, why can't I do that? Right? It, it's, so we, we've seen a couple people try. Yeah. And, and, it, and the culture says, no, you can't do that. Yeah. But if I want to be a woman, yes. I, I can. Absolutely, yeah. Why? Uh, bec- again, because what we're seeing here, y- you see here the futility of li- of trying to do these things apart from the the reality that God has created, the reality in which we live. Because what's happened is um, there, our culture has decided there are certain places where you're free to define your identity, but there are other places where we won't let you. So uh, gender is a place where you're free to define your identity, Justin. If you came out as a woman tomorrow, the 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 society would clap for you. If tomorrow you said you wanted to be black, we would all shame you because actually now you're being a racist, mm-hmm. right? Or now now you're in a category which is race, which we've decided is not a category where we can play with these subjective categories. So our, in, in doing that, what our society is saying is, actually, we still do believe in givenness. Mm. We still do believe in biology. It's just we've chosen, or the society around us has chosen where we will apply that and where we won't, which is a, a good place for Christians to de- deconstruct the, the narrative, right? Is to say, well, it's interesting that this is true in some places, but not in other places. Yeah. <clears throat> and you see that with this article. Well, you also saw it with the Amy Coney Barrett trial when, yes. when she said sexual preference, I think, and she was like shamed. Yeah. by one of the senators, and then whatever it was, if it was Britannica or whatever dictionary, dictionary.com or whatever, literally went and changed the definition uh, to and in the definition of sexual preference said this is offensive to some. They added that hmm. within hours of that statement. On, and, and to me, I'm sitting here, where did that come from? Who decided that? Yeah. When, when CNN says, Elliot Page, Star of Umbrella Academy you know, transitions to a queer man. If there's that, that statement is so clear that if I go, what, that doesn't make sense. There's now a judgment upon right. me yes. as transphobic or, yes. or whatever. Which is why we, we can say as Christians, Justin, that at the heart of this, it's actually all religious. Um, we can, we are religious people who can't avoid um, bringing categories of worship into whatever we do. And so what you're experiencing there is because you violated the prevailing orthodoxy, right, you're cast out and you need atonement. And mm. if you, you know, there's a secular, there's a, a sort of gen, a transgender version of atonement, right? There's there's ways you sort of go through the, um, the categories of uh, penance and repentance to be restored. And so there's, 
it can't actually bring any atonement or restoration, but it's interesting that it works according. It's it's a false gospel always mimics the true gospel and what it demands of you, what it asks of you, and how it seeks to provide for you. And that's all you're describing is that we we live in a world where actually now we could take Carl Truman's observation a step further, I think. I don't know if he does this in the last part of the book because I haven't gotten through it all yet. But if if he says identity has been uh, psychologized, psychology has been sexualized, uh, sex has been politicized, I think we could say, and politics has been sacralized Mm, to where where there's now a a religious overtone to all of it. Yeah. And it's, yeah, that's, that's, that's good way to say it because the, the other isn't a person that just disagrees with some policies. They're evil. Right. (laughs) They've been, they are, they are the other. Yeah. They are. And they're, they're trying, I mean, everybody, right. The other side is always trying to destroy our country and take our children and all these things, but it has, it has reached an, an idolatrous level. Yes. And so what's interesting to me about this is I think it probably has implications for our understanding of Christian mission in the modern world because I think whereas when I planted the church uh, 15, 16 years ago, um, 15 years ago now, uh, I think there was a sense in that world, in 2005 America, where the idea of... um, embracing the culture in order to critique it and and being a prophetic voice in the culture, mm-hmm. <clears throat> inviting them to see their idolatry and turn to Jesus, where that worked in a certain way. <clears throat> I almost think that what people like Rod Dreher are bringing to the forefront now with the Benedict option, even though I don't agree <clears throat> with his fundamental hypothesis, I think what's interesting is I do think we're in a moment where it's more important for the church to be a counterculture mm. than it is for the church to simply engage the culture. Because I think what's going to happen is, as you said, no matter how we try to engage the culture, if we're going to hold to any sense of givenness or any sense of human nature or any sense of biology or any sense of sexual ethic, we're going to be just flat out rejected. And so if we hold to the truths of Scripture and the truths of the gospel, what's actually important is that we shape a meaningful counterculture where people really are flourishing and finding life so that as the people around us experience the the natural consequences of trying to live in a reality that just doesn't make sense, the church becomes a beautifying reality, not in a way that makes it entirely um, isolated or separate from the culture. But I, I just think, like I think about um, the, the ways that uh, actually raising kids according to a biblical ethic is really countercultural. Yeah. Right. Because because no one no one wants that to happen right now. In fact, more and more. The educational establishment is even saying, "Hey, you as a parent have we don't want you speaking in your we don't want you to shape your kids if you're going to shape them according to a consistent Christian ethic. We yeah. want the freedom to sort of redefine uh, what it means for them to be shaped." So, I, I do think there's the the mission of the church increasingly is shaping a beautiful gospel driven counterculture that is an attractive alternative. Yeah, that and that kind of leads me to my. Second question, and I might be, I'm going to riff off of Truman here a little bit. He talks about um, this concept he called, well, it was another, I can't remember who came up with it, but it's called Death Works. Yeah. And it's basically, it, maybe I'm summarizing incorrectly, so you can correct me if I'm wrong. It's kind of like the social imaginary that you were talking about, um, but it's created by art and movies and stories, and it's what you believe in your gut. It's kind of this um, sub sub subversive way of shaping a person's worldview. Yeah. 
And what I've been thinking a lot about is everything on Netflix, everything our kids are watching, everything we're watching. Yeah. I grew up thinking, you know, I shouldn't watch premarital sex. I shouldn't watch nudity, cussing. I'm, I shouldn't, you know, listen to cussing and some of that murder stuff's probably bad. And now I'm looking at things going, wait, I think there's something even way worse than all of that. And it's everything that you had on the board earlier. The, the main narrative in every single show is trust yourself. Yeah, be true to yourself. Trust your psychological self. Yeah. Parents can't tell you who you are. Yeah. Society can't. No one else can. Be true to yourself, even though you don't know who yourself is. And you're not even going to be able to know yourself until right. you're 18. Right. Right. And that narrative is, so that narrative I feel like is everywhere and it's undermining, it's putting some things, some thoughts in our kid's head where then if I get up on stage and I kind of step into the worldview of Elliot Page and try, you know, does that make that worldview sound more plausible to my child who's sitting in the pew or do I get up in the pulpit and just show the absurdity of it yeah. and just blast it yeah. so that he gets the, the uniqueness yeah. of the Christian identity and the Christian community. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that I think the Bible does, the Bible shows us both. <clears throat> and there's probably a wisdom factor there to like, when is it appropriate to do each? Um, there is certainly in the scriptures um, a, a leaning into absurdity. To Like I think about uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel yeah. in 1 Kings 18, where he's like, hey, you guys should pray a little louder. Maybe God's asleep. Maybe he's taking a nap. Taking a Why don't you break? cut yourselves a little more and see? Like maybe he's, yeah. And what he's doing is mocking in a very public way, in a very, like everybody's there. And Elijah is just mocking and ridiculing their hypocrisy and false worship. And I think there is, I think it's appropriate to do that. And I think part of what good humor does is to trade in those kinds of things. I think there's also um, a sense in which, we also have to realize, yeah, and as I, every time I preach, I realize, hey, there are people in my congregation who are not only immersed in these things, but believe that they are true and yeah. credible and plausible. And so I don't want to mock them in a way that creates an insider-outsider dichotomy where this person's going to feel like I'm mocking them. So, so to, the, to be able to do that in a way that sort of threads that needle of showing the absurdity of a life that tries to deny the existence of God, while at the same time honoring those who might not yet embrace a Christian worldview, and I'm trying to sort of win them into a gospel way of seeing. That's I don't know how to do that really well. That's a challenge. But I think there's, I guess what I'm saying is, I think both are important. Um, yeah, yeah, I can see that. Now, what I did, here's, a, I'll, I'll share this some this afternoon, but what I did, I, I think back to a sermon I preached on the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. And I was preaching through the Ten Commandments in my church and was just trying to help. I was, I was thinking through as I prayed through this sermon, okay, the text is, thou shalt not commit adultery. Anybody who's done any work on the Ten Commandments or read any of the catechisms knows, okay, that's not just a prohibition, mm -hmm. but it's an exhortation, right? Yep. So it, it just it applies to all kinds of sexual morality. Jesus said it applies to lust, it applies to things you're thinking, blah, blah. So it goes deeper than just the sin of adultery. What are what I sat there and prayed through is what are the defeaters for the people in my church? What would keep them from believing this commandment is good? Yeah. And I realized they're all tied to their view of the self. And so if all I do is to say, like, hey guys, don't have sex. Bible says so. Jesus died, so we won't. You know, yeah. spirit lives in you to empower you to live a, a wise and consistent sexual ethic. Let me pray for you, go in peace. 
I've done good things in ex- exhorting them according to the text, but I haven't undermined the way the culture is seeking to make that commandment implausible. Yeah. So what I sought to do in that sermon, I did about a 10-minute sidebar in that sermon where I said, hey, let me tell you, let me talk about some ways your world teaches you to view the self um, and how that maps onto your view of sexuality. I was just doing work that Jonathan Grant did in his book, Divine Sex. And what I tried to do there is to say, hey, if you think that the self is defined by authenticity and autonomy, then you're going to hear any command from God as a knock on your autonomy and freedom. What you need to see is that actually no self is autonomous. You actually were never intended to be a law to yourself. And therefore, good laws are designed to move you into freedom, not to restrict your freedom. So I'm trying to parse out there and do some work to show how our thinking about the self really does affect what we hear in the scriptures. That's good. I know um, I try to do that, and I feel like sometimes that is the hardest part of my sermon is I'm look I'm like oh I get what the text says I can I could preach this but here's the problem as soon as I start they they're not even listening anymore because it doesn't make sense to them. it doesn't fit into their worldview right. right in their plausibility structure and so I, I sometimes I just that that's just what that's what wears me out as yeah. a pastor is okay first I'm going to have to tell you why this is good news for you yeah, that's right you know and because yes. I'm same thing I'm working through uh, the sermon on the mount <clears throat> and every week I'm having to do that yep. because with, with sexuality, with, with adultery, and, um, and do that hard work. And the thing that I'm finding is people really, they do eat it up because they've never heard another, another script for sexuality. Right, yeah. So, you know, we, I just kept hitting on um, sex as um, a, a covenant renewal ceremony. Yeah. You know, and went, played yeah. off of like uh, the Lord's Supper. Yeah. And they had never thought of it that way. Yeah. And it's not just, you know, don't have sex, right. you know, until you're married. Right. But it, or and then when you get married, stop having sex. Right. Because that's the world's the world's narrative. Yeah. Exactly. Is have as much as you can before because you're not going to have very much afterwards. Yeah. And how contrary that is to the good life yeah. and human flourishing that the way God. Yeah. But it's hard, man. It's real hard. Well, <laughs> and it it's, it shows why I think in the the immersion in a local church over time is crucial. Because people have to be exposed to enough of that over time that they start to go, oh yeah, I do see how that could make sense. No one's going to be won over in one sermon. There's, yeah. you know, there's no way that anyone listening to one sermon from the Beatitudes would be convinced that the way of Jesus is the way to human flourishing. Yeah. But probably over months or years, that be, it does. If we do a faithful job to what you and I are supposed to do as we preach, I think it it does start to to give people a sense of like, oh, there's another way to live out there that maybe I should give some thought to. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it just, I think, helps me realize as a preacher, man, immersion in a community is really crucial for formation. I agree. I have some dystopian tendencies here, though. Yeah, me Cause, too. Because it, it, it causes me to ask the question, we, we've, already, we've, we've known as a missional church that one or, one or two hours on Sunday... Yeah. is never going to be enough. Yep. So they've got to be life on life, in community, on mission. Yep. But with the um, ubiquitous nature of social media now yep. and 24-hour news, I realized a few months ago I, I lost the battle with our people. When it came to politics, I, I, I don't even have a say 
they are completely catechized by either CNN or Fox News, yeah. and and I am, I should just shut up and go home. That's that's what I felt. Uh, so, speak to that. It, are we? I mean, is this just you know we're going against the grain of the universe, and it, and we're going to have some kind of not, not maybe not physical civil war, but political civil war, like you're talking about, or is there reason? Is there reason to hope, Bob? <laughs> there are two ways to think about that. One is dystopian. One is more. <laughs> One is more optimistic. Um, I think if you, uh, you know, I would say it this way. The people of God are called to be faithful to Jesus no matter what happens in the world. And so in some sense, yeah, I think that will look like suffering as we go forward because it, our culture is not going to continue to just embrace the fact that we're there. Uh, so I, I do think there might be some sense in which, yeah, we're just going to be called to be a marginalized people. And that won't be the first time God's people have experienced that. And we'll adapt to it and we'll know what it looks like uh, as we get there. So so I think there's a sense in which maybe we should be prepared for like marginalization and, and just sort of um, living in a world that thinks we're crazy. I think there's also a sense in which it's possible that our culture will sort of eat itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that's far from imagining at all. In fact, it's kind of already happening. Um, if you paid attention to what happened with J.K. Rowling at all this yeah. year, right? The logic of feminism and the logic of the transgender movement are on a collision course with each other, and there's not a way out of that battle. <laughs> Wait, this when, when Caitlyn Jenner became, or no, Bruce Jenner became Caitlyn Jenner, and then won Woman of the Year. Yeah. How, how did not every woman on the planet yeah. or in the United States say, "Wait"? A man is the best woman this year? Well, again, because it, yeah, because that's not an orthodox thing to say, but it, it takes a courageous person to stand up and go, no, 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 this doesn't make sense. But that's increasingly happening. And so I do think that like there's ways in which the logic and insanity of the, the paganism around us may sort of just collapse on itself. I think that's quite likely that that could happen. Um, and I think that's where I'm, I'm happy with just the church being the church and being there when that happens and being able to say, oh, yeah, guys, we never subscribed to that. We always we were always telling you there was a given human nature and that you were more than your psychology and your therapy and right your inner feelings. We, we've always told you there's an objective reality outside of you defining your identity and offering you a new identity. So if we're there at that moment, then I think that can be really helpful. Um, but either way, I think we it's really clear that we're the church is no longer in a place of cultural privilege and and that just is what it is and that's okay. And so to go back to your thing about uh, your people already being catechized, yes, all of all of us are already catechized and I think it is time for the church to ask some hard questions about are we effectively making disciples and if not what needs to change. And things like this podcast are a helpful thing because it it's it's seeking to continue to put content in people's laps and in their ears that helps them navigate the world. And I think we're going to have to keep asking the question, yeah, is what we're doing, is even a missional church model where we're saying, hey, it's not just Sunday mornings, but it's life on life. In addition to that, what what do we need to be doing in that to effectively catechize one another and disciple one another in a way that stems the tide of the ways our culture is seeking to shape us? That's good. Uh, last question. <clears throat> and I'll, oh, let I'll, me say let me say one more thing there. Okay. Keep your last question in mind. <laughs> I think disciplines like fasting uh, are going to become like if you think about 
uh, last year in Lent, some of the people in our church fasted from social media, and it was transformative for them. But but only then were they able to see like, oh man, I I realize how much this defines my world. Yeah. Right. So disciplines of abstinence, which the church in America has not traditionally done a great job of. I think if I think about what can our missional communities do, what can people life on life do? Well, we can commit together to certain practices that pull us out of that constant noise. That's probably we're probably going to have to get better at those kinds of things with one another and committing to do that together. Um, if we're going to sort of avoid the catechesis of Fox News and CNN. So, yeah. Sorry, that was just a thought. No, it's good. Uh, and at, honestly, I think I told you this. I think uh, August 1st was my last social media post ever. Or done, I'm like, done. We'll see if anything changes. But I realized I couldn't, I just couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. I mean, you get sucked down rabbit holes so easy. You get sucked into arguments so easy. Um, you just see the polarization, especially if you're a pastor and you've got, you know, a lot of diverse friends and people that I'm on mission to and people at my church. And it was just a dumpster fire. <laughs> and, and, I, and I was like, I don't know how I can preach knowing this is what this guy thinks. About, yeah, yeah, exactly. Know, what? And it just depressed. It's like first, it's like reading second Corinthians. It's like Paul going, I don't know. Maybe, maybe the, everything's been a waste. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that's, and, it, and he says, maybe it was just the Lord trying to humble me. Yeah. I'm like, yep, yeah, that's probably what he's doing. Um, so my last question is, I'm, I'm going to ask you to be a little prescient here or maybe prophetic. What's next? It, the transgender thing, what, what could be next? I mean, for me, is it just going to eat itself or it, are they going to move on to something else? Because we saw accepting homosexuality, not just accepting it, but declaring that it's good. Right. Homosexual marriage, you can't just accept, you got to declare that it's good. You have to bake a cake for that person or you have to do all these things. Right. Now you have to declare transgenderism, transgenderism is good teaching it in schools, the whole deal. Like what, what's next? Is there another category? Is there another, you know, what's, what's next? I have no idea. If you're asking me to prognosticate, I would say the only category left is they're coming for your kids, right? So like pedophilia and, and, and the only sexual transgressive thing left has to do with sexual involvement with children. I don't know if that domino will ever fall. I hope not because I hope people will, I hope there's still a firewall there. But I think that's the, if I think about what what are all the transgressive things we've already embraced, like that's the only one left. Um, so I just think as Christians, we have to be stalwart in our convictions about parents protecting, guarding, teaching, training, discipling, caring for our kids, and the church doing that well. Um, but beyond that, I, I do think that this is, it's, it's just all good. There's a big conflagration of... Um, I, I would liken it to this. If I look back, what, what's an analog in my lifetime? I was born in 1974. Uh, the Berlin Wall collapsed in 1989. Communism functionally was, my, my childhood was the Cold War. It was mm-hmm. like Russia and the Eastern Bloc countries, and like that was just my childhood. And then in 1989, that all just died and like just went away in a spirit of three or four years, just... Russia is now a free country, and now you got Putin, which is another issue. But all the Eastern Bloc countries, all the Baltics, um, that whole thing opened up. And so what you saw was this 100-year experiment of Marxism and communism sort of falling apart in, in the part of the world where everybody thought, this is, this is the poster child for this way of thinking and being. 
it's possible that I think that could happen with all of the um, sexualization and politicization of all of this, that, that it could just be that there's a day coming where this all just falls apart, where, where it literally just, it can't sustain itself anymore. Um, I hope that day is coming. Um, and I, I think Christians should be ready at that moment to go, yeah, let's, let's step in and build the world that we've tried to say for years. Yeah, yeah, this, this world can't sustain itself. Um, so I, I think that might be what's coming. I think that could be a good analog because I, I just don't think the other thing I'm mindful of is, um, the only way for them to demand our allegiance is through oppression, right? Like God's people aren't going to stand up and say, yeah, all this stuff is okay and good and great. And, you know, we don't, we're willing to abandon our convictions about scripture and Jesus in order to commend it. I realize many people have done that, mm-hmm. but there's always going to be a faithful remnant of God's people who are just going to say, yeah, we're not going to do that. And so the only thing left is throw us in the fiery furnace, you know? So either we're headed for oppression or we're headed for renewal. Those are, those are the two. Yeah, it's good. Those are the two possibilities. Yeah. Let's pray for renewal. Yeah, you and me both. <laughs> and let's also pray that like, if, if it's oppression, that we have the courage and faithfulness to stand there in the midst of that because it won't be oppression forever. I really do think that... Um, you know, these are the the death works that you mentioned, right? These are the death throes of um, a society that is given in a demonic way to a lot of self-indulgence and a lot of abandonment of norms. Um, and, and ultimately, a society given to that can't sustain itself yeah. for the long term. Yeah. <clears throat> well, Bob, I could literally talk with you all afternoon, brother. I appreciate you being on here. This has been a blessing. Thanks for the chance to talk. And I'm excited to hear the... Hear the rest, rest of the talk. I'm going to figure it all out this afternoon. I just got to work. I just got to workshop some of it right here. So hopefully the talks will be better. <laughs> well, guys, hopefully this was helpful to you. Uh, if you got any questions, you can email me Justin Dean at sacredcitychurch.com. Uh, we are going to post uh, Bob's audio uh, onto the onto the podcast, so you guys can uh, hear that if you weren't at Porterbrook. We love you. Hopefully this was helpful. God bless you. Talk to you soon.